Amen. Thank you, Howard. It's good to be back this morning. We've got a lot of people who are out for Thanksgiving, but I've seen the Lowrys. There's Terry Lowry and his, he calls her his BMW. That stands for Beautiful Magnificent Wife. Uh, but uh, it is nice to see y'all. Terry has a great radio show uh, on KTEK. What is it on the dial? 1110, and it's from noon till 1230 to 2. Christian Talk Radio, and uh, uh, it's a wonderful show if you ever get a chance to tune in. I think it's also available on the Internet, and uh, uh, Terry's a wonderful friend, and it's, they're obviously playing hooky because they're an integral part of another church out in this side of town, so it's nice to have them here. Got to see the... the Tim and Phil's uh, mother, who is in town, and a number of you who are visiting. So it's nice to have Johnny and, and the whole uh, first-year Leone College clan um, here, Veronica. Um, if you need a lesson, Mark Craver's got them. Hold up your hands. We're going to finish Galatians this morning, God willing. I have one more announcement to make, and then we will get to class. Um, I've had a semi-tragedy at work. Um, a dear friend of mine and one of the most important lawyers I uh, had at my shop uh, came in and quit on me. Um, his name's Philip. Y'all probably know him. He's right over there. And uh, I only agreed to allow him to quit if we could continue to work together. He has uh, reached a point where he's a wonderfully independent lawyer, uh, used to have his own shop before he ever came to me and uh, uh, has opened up his own law firm. Still, we do a lot of work together. He is a dear personal friend, um, but uh, a, a serious loss at the law firm. Fortunately, uh, he has been so gracious. He, we've kept him with a key and a card because Philip copies all of our lessons every Sunday and brings them here and uh, has graciously continued to do that as a part of this class not as a, an employee of the Lanier Law Firm. And Philip, thank you very much for continuing to plug in here. I appreciate it. Okay. <clears throat> Edward taught last week, and those of you who were here will know why I always say about Edward, it's like trying to take a drink from a fire hydrant. He just opens up and the water just gushes out and you get... <laughs> the water's coming by. And uh, he told me he was very proud. He said, I made 60 verses in 40 minutes. And I said, well, I'll bet you did, Edward. And, uh, uh, but I am very grateful to him for filling in for Becky and I. Uh, uh, and uh, it, it was a nice little break. But it's nice to be back, and it's wonderful to get to finish Galatians. Let's start with some background and plug in. If you're brand new to this class and you've never been before, we're working our way through the Bible we started with Genesis, we're going to Revelation, we're doing it with a focus not on examining verse by verse by verse, lest we all die before we finish, but we're doing it with a focus on what we consider biblical literacy. What do we need to know to be biblically literate? Who wrote these books? Why are they in the order they're in? That's an interesting concept. You know, who decided which books are in and which are out? What are the major stories and themes we need to know with each book? And we have worked our way through and we're actually in the book of Acts right now. 
But we stopped at Acts chapter 15 because that's where Paul wrote Galatians. And, and, and at least in my opinion, and I'm teaching, so that's what we're going with. And uh, we've thrown Galatians in to try and understand it within the flow and the context of the time period there in Acts 15. After we finish it today, next week we'll pick back up with Acts again. So um, um, today we're finishing the book of Galatians. Galatians is the first letter I believe Paul wrote. Uh, 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 that's why it's the first letter we've looked at. The theme behind Galatians is that our salvation, our right standing before God. If someone asks you, are you saved? What someone should be meaning is, do you stand in a right relationship with God? In other words, are you in harmony and unity with God? So that when this life is over, will you spend your eternity with God because you are already one with Him? The concept in the Bible is eternal life for a Christian has already started. We're still living in these crusty old bodies that are aging day by day. But our souls, our spirits, who we are, if we are saved, we already have eternal life. We've already started it. And um, um, as Scott mentioned this morning, when he looked at the Romans 8 passage or used it as the bookends, we, we are being daily conformed to the image of God's Son. That's what God has predestined us for. He has predestined us to become more like His Son. So the theme behind the book of Galatians is that this standing right before God, this eternal life that's begun for the Christian, this unifying back with God, This relationship that exists between us and God, which is one of intimacy, is one that comes from faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. It's not because you're good enough that God loves you and walks with you. It's not because I'm holy enough that God and I have intimate fellowship. Our fellowship and our relationship is based upon one thing, and that's the death of Jesus Christ for my sins, because it is my sin which is the barrier that keeps me from God. And by washing away that sin, through faith, I have Jesus' righteousness and I'm reunited. That's what the core of Galatians is. And the Galatian churches heard that message when Paul and Barnabas preached there on their missionary journey. But the churches didn't hold to the message because other people came in and said, well, that's a fine place to start, but there's so much more to it than that. You need to start following certain parts of the law. You certainly need to be circumcised. That's a ritual that makes you Jewish. And you must be that, at least, to be pleasing to God. And Paul is in stark opposition to that, writes this letter in vehement opposition and says, no, your salvation did not start by works of law. Why on earth do you think it would continue that way? Okay, So that's the theme within the book. But um, the, the way Paul wrote his letters is his letters would always have two divisions. The first one would talk in nice um, terms of theology or doctrine or are, are just idea, the, the ideas that we need to understand. But the second part of Paul's letters would always be very practical about how to live. 
and how this translates into action and what happens. It's as if Paul would come into this class. If we had Paul speaking and he spoke the way he wrote, Paul would come in and he would start out by telling each one of you the religious, doctrinal, theological understandings, the ideas you need to have to understand how God is working and who God is and how you plug in. And then he would say, now let's talk about what happens when you leave here. Because when you leave here, here are some things you need to change and work on in your life. And here's practically what it means for these things to be there. And that's what we have here. We've looked at chapters 1 through 4, which were the doctrine chapters already. And now we're looking at chapters 5 and 6, which are the application. So Paul's message today in these last two chapters of his letter are very much messages of here are ways you need to work in your life on living. This is Paul's counsel for living to the Galatians, which is something then we take and understand and apply for us today. Paul begins this in chapter 5 explaining freedom. Why? Well, Paul, <clears throat> and, and it's not just Paul. Let me, let me give an illustration from my life. Um, I had an opportunity to teach this uh, uh, book, Galatians. Uh, the message of Romans and Galatians I taught to about a hundred and some odd college kids when I was in law school. And when I taught it, I sat down with a dear friend of mine who was in charge of the college program, the college minister. And he sat me down and he said, now, tell me how you're going to teach this. Because he kind of wanted to know before I got up there and did it. He wasn't going to be in the room and, you know, heresy and all that that stuff. Anyway, so I explained to him the way I was going to teach this. And I said, I'm just going to teach it. I think the way Paul taught it, which is you, your salvation comes by faith. In Christ, it's not by works, and we should never confuse the two, lest either we get too discouraged because we're not good enough, or we get proud and boastful because we think we are good enough, both of which are core problems. So I said, I'm planning on teaching it this way. And then I said, and we will teach, uh, uh, and, and he stopped me there, he said, time out. He said, do you worry that if you teach it this way, the college kids will take it as a license to sin. You stand up there and you teach that you do all the good works in the world and it won't put you in right standing before God. You're only in right standing before God by faith and faith alone, not faith plus works. If you teach that, perhaps the college students might take it as license to sin. They can do what they want, saved by grace through faith. Hey, party time. And my response to him was, if I stopped it there, maybe, but really what you've just done is really encouraged me to teach it more. And he said, why? And I said, because Paul had the same concern. Paul never taught you're saved by faith without following it up with a good discussion of what that translates into in terms of deeds. In other words, works are very important. They're not important because they get you saved. They're not important because they keep you saved. They're important because that shows you are saved. 
And I said, if we don't understand the freedom in Christ and the responsibility that goes with that freedom, I said, then there's a huge concern. But my concern would not be that the college students are out with a license to sin. My concern would be that the college students never understood the death of Christ for their sins. Because if you understand what Jesus did for you, and you trust in that for your salvation, the good works follow just as naturally as fruit grows on a tree. And, and the illustration that I used then that I'll use this morning, if you want an apple tree, you need to plant what? An apple tree. Doesn't do you any good to go to Randall's Buy a bushel of apples, go find your favorite oak tree, get your ladder, and start taping them on the branches. When you're done, you don't have an apple tree. You have an oak tree with apples taped on the branches. If you want an apple tree, you plant an apple tree. Okay. Now, technically, some of y'all were saying you plant apple seeds. We have such hybrid varieties of apples that won't work this day and age, okay? Just for what it's worth. You've got to have the rootstock and you've got to graft it on. But that's a whole different subject for something totally unrelated to the Bible. <laughs> if you want an apple tree, you plant an apple tree. If you want your works right before God, then you get your faith right before God. Because from faith in Jesus Christ come the fruit of good works. But it's not the fruit that makes the Christian. It's the faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul has to deal with this same issue with the Galatians. He will not merely explain salvation by faith and leave it there. Lest people understand it as a license to sin. Because it's not. So this... You know, that could be Gilligan's Island. <laughs> I'll figure this out one day. So this freedom is something that, that Paul explains. And he starts in chapter 5 explaining it. He says the freedom is a freedom from the obligations of the law. The law is not something that, that, that a Christian sees as an obligation that must be followed to please the Lord. That's not what freedom is. Freedom is no longer an obligation. Freedom means you're no longer obligated to satisfy God by living by this standard set of rules. Your relationship with God is no longer based on how good were you today. If you are approaching God through the law, then your approach is not Right. And the problem with it is, Paul says in Galatians, is if you want to try and approach him through the law, the answer is be perfect. You remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, if you want to do what it takes to inherit eternal life, it's easy. Follow the law and don't make any mistakes. One sin, boom, you're gone. Remember, it was one sin that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden and fallen to start with. One sin. And that wasn't even a major one. It's not like they were out there doing major sin. 
They ate something they weren't supposed to. At its core, it was rebellion. It was disobedience to God. But even sin that looks innocuous at its core is that. And it took one to send our world into its fallen condition and our race into its fallen condition. Do we think that if we kept everything perfectly and yet sinned just a little bit, that we would be pleasing to God? It was Martin Luther who said the best human deed is tainted with at least a little bit of selfishness. That alone makes even your best deeds sinful. So if you approach God through the law, you uh, uh, are approaching God in a way where you'll never be able to find Him. In chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul writes, It is for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. Look at verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. If you approach God through the law, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. I want to pause for a minute. We're going to get through this today. But there's a, a, a little Greek lesson for you today. Okay, who's in the mood for a little Greek? A little baklava for the soul. Um, there is a, a grammar construction in Greek. And arthris. And what that means, in Greek, there is the definite article. Okay, this is... Those of you who get bored by grammar, go to sleep. If you notice someone sleeping, I'll tell you when to wake them up when the grammar is over. Okay? It's okay. This is not like required. This is an optional course for a minute. The definite article is the word the. Now, in English, we have a definite article, the, and we also have an indefinite article, which is a. And the article means that you've got a noun coming, right? So a, or um, an, if it starts with a verb. Um, like an apple. That just means an apple, right? If I go to a university, what does that mean? It means I go to, to a college, right? But if I tell you I go to the university, you know, let's say I go to a university of Texas. I go to Johnny, Texas Tech. Great. But if I say I go to the University of Texas, <laughs> then Veronica and, and everybody else. That's right. You know what I'm talking about. Because I'm talking about a definite noun. I'm talking about a, that's the definite article. The makes it definite, right? Okay. When Paul, all right, the, the Greek language has the definite article. But it doesn't have an indefinite article. doesn't have it. The indefinite article uh, isn't in the Greek. They just don't use one. If they're talking generally, they just don't put the article in there. But if they're talking about a specific something, they do. So in Galatians, look at Galatians 3.10 for a minute. That's a good one to show the way Paul does this. 
Galatians 3.10. There it is. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now, that's our English. And in our English, if we look at this word law, we will see in one time they've got the word the in front of it, they being the translators, the NIV. The second time they've got the word the in front of it. Right? In the Greek, the word the is only there one time. This the is not in the Greek because Paul's talking about general law, not just the Old Testament. Any concept that you work for your salvation, you set up the law. It doesn't have to be the Bible's law. You set up the rules by which you're allowed to relate to God. And anyone who relies on works, uh, on observing law, any law, yours, the Bible, whatever you want... All who rely on observing law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And Paul uses the word the there because he's talking about the Old Testament. And that's the specific law. So if you go back to this Galatians passage that we were looking at before the screensaver, you who are trying to be justified by law, there's no the there in the Greek. Because Paul's saying any kind of law. It doesn't have to be the Old Testament law. It can be the law devised by the the Baptist church. It can be the law devised by the church of Christ. By the Catholic church. By the Methodist church. By the Presbyterian church. Whatever it is. If you're trying to be declared right before God by law, you're alienated from Jesus because the whole reason Jesus came and died, the grace, the favor He did for you, the whole reason was to save you without regard to the law. So here's the comparison Paul makes. He says, on one hand, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen from grace. On the other hand, he says, but by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. And that's the comparison. Saved by law, justified, declared right by law, or by faith. And Paul makes it clear. It is not the law. It is the faith. So he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, circumcision is his illustration of the law. That's part of the law that was being taught to the Galatians is necessary. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's what counts. That's what we're about. That is the barometer for the Christian. Faith expressing itself through love. So what are we free for? We have this freedom in Christ. We've been set free. The law is no longer our master. The law is not what we relate to God through. So are we free to indulge our sinful nature? Now are we free to do whatever we want, to live the cavalier life? Can we laugh at sin? (laughs) Ha, 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 I laugh at sin. I can do what I want. I've been saved. 
And works have nothing to do with it. So bring on the sin. Let the sinning begin. I have a good friend who's a retired judge. He retired and went to work at Second Baptist. And he was in charge of running all of the programs. But he confided to me once that his major job was to provide the sin for the preaching. And he said after he'd done been there two years, he'd provided enough for Ed Young to have a lifetime of sermons. So he moved on. Knowing this judge, that may be true. He's no, he's a nice fella. But you know, his concept was one that 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 in in a laughing way showed this idea that are we now free to do whatever we want? Absolutely not. That's not why God set you free. That's not why God set me free. I have not been set free from the law, so I can do willy nilly pell mell whatever I want. I have been set free so that I can better serve you in love. I've been set free so I can better serve my neighbor in love. I've been set free so I can better serve my family in love. Because being bound by the law, when you're trying your hardest and you're doing everything by the law so that you can be right before God, You are not in a position to even remotely begin to serve one another in love. It's all you can do to take care of yourself. And you're building yourself up and you're seeking to be self-righteous. And you're seeking to be uh, boastful in who you are, whether you know it or not. Or you're living under such defeat that you don't think you've got anything to offer anybody. And it just doesn't work. And so Christ has set you free, but He didn't set us free from this law so we could go out and do whatever we wanted. He set us free from this law so that we would have the ability to better serve one another in love. Faith expressing itself through love. And that's what it's about. And Paul says in verse 14, the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the way Paul lays it out. So Paul says, you've got the spirit now leading you as opposed to this sinful nature that you were born with. And the difference between the two is profound. Life for a Christian who has invited Jesus into their lives and who walks in relationship to God, this is someone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. That is what God gives us upon our relationship. It is the seal of our covenant and our relationship. It is God living in us. And that's what we have. And the difference between that spirit within us, which is God, and the old sinful nature is profound. Paul explains it. Paul says, live by the spirit And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You have the Spirit of God in you. You've been set free from the requirements of the law in terms of being right with God. And what do you have now? You have an ability to follow the Spirit as you serve one another in love. It's the Spirit that's going to lead you to do this. That's what you need to be listening to. That's the voice you need to hear. That's what you need to let feed you. Because that's where you want to grow. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other. So that you don't do what you want. Paul explains this more so in Romans. He says, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. 
The very thing I want to do, I don't. Who's going to save me from this wretched creature that I am? And he answers it, Jesus Christ. Because you see the conflict. We all see the conflict. You know the internal turmoil when you don't do what you want to do. When you're not the way you want to be. And Paul says the sinful nature, is it's a no-brainer what's involved in the sinful nature. And he gives a list of about 15 different items. Now, these are not a total list. This is just some of the items that come to his mind. The sinful nature, he says, sexual immorality. The Greek word porneo. We get pornography from it. It's not merely a pornography type of immorality, though. It includes all sorts of sexual immorality. All things that are outside what God explained the sexual relationship to be for. Um, uh, uh, and, and so that's, that's part of the sinful nature. That's part of that struggle that goes on. Impurity. The word for impurity, akatharsia, is not uh, just a... a um, it's, it's, it's in part the opposite of holiness, but it's also the way Paul's using it here, part of sexual impurity as well. It's got that overtone. But impurity, impurity of mind, impurity of heart. It's not just sexual immorality, which is more a focus on the deeds, but it's also a focus on the, the, the heart and the mind. And that's part of the sinful nature. Debauchery. Um, um, debauchery, uh, the, the, the Greek word is aselgia. And what it's a reference to is just such an utter callous disregard for other people that you just openly and brazenly sin in front of them. You know, I, I can remember and growing up... Um, one one of the times, in fact, I, I I see my grandmother. Is mom here too? She is? Well, I can't use this illustration. Um, <laughs> I can remember when I was in about fifth or sixth grade, Catherine, my older sister, had a friend over and we were eating dinner. And I don't remember exactly what I was railing away at. Catherine over, but I do remember wailing away, and I was um, uh, 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 suitably kicked under the table by my mother. I never had that done before. It wasn't a hard kick, but it was very clearly a communication kick. And I <laughs> said, why did you kick me under the table? In a very loud voice. And we were excused from the table at that point, Mom and I, and we went into the other room, and she explained to me that while my behavior was inappropriate, it was especially inappropriate with someone else in the house. And that doesn't show them respect. So I'm not only doing something that's wrong for me, but I'm showing other people how wrong I can be. And that's wrong, and that's not allowed in our house. And the next time she gently kicks me under the table, I'm not supposed to make a big deal out of that either. I'm supposed to figure out what it means instead of ask. <laughs> In its own small way, mom was teaching me against debauchery. You don't brazenly, you, you care about other people. You don't brazenly sin in front of them. That's not from God. Idolatry <laughs> comes from two Greek words uh, 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 here. The first one is idol, 
Do you know what the Greek word for idol means? Do you know what, what the Greek word idol means? Idol. And then latria, which means worship. So uh, idolatria in the uh, Greek is pretty darn close to what we've got. Worshiping idols. Now, that doesn't mean, oh, I can't go to the Chinese restaurant where they've got the big, what would we call that, Bob? Buddha. Okay, sometimes Bob and I tease each other that it kind of looks like us. (laughs) More so when we're leaving the restaurant than going in. Um, But it doesn't mean, hey, don't get on your knees in front of the big Buddha. Yeah, I mean, that's part of what it means, but it's much more significant than that. We worship idols when we put anything in place of God. Our car. Paul talks in Philippians about people whose God is their appetite. Um, you put things in front of God and you, you value those things more than you value God or in a way that you should only value God. And that's idolatry. And that's from the sinful nature. Witchcraft. Um, interesting Greek word, pharmakia, is the Greek word for witchcraft. What does it sound like? Pharmakia. Pharmacy. Yeah, pharmakia in its origin in the Greek meant uh, drugs. But what happened is it started out meaning beneficial drugs. Then it started meaning non-beneficial drugs. Then it started meaning drugs that you took to try and find some greater enlightenment. And that was akin to witchcraft. because, and So we translate it witchcraft. It's looking for your answers outside of God. Um, hatred. Uh, uh, the Greek word for hatred means hatred. <laughs> it's a pretty accurate translation. Discord. Um, those are divisions. That's, that's uh, putting one group against another. Uh, uh, it's... it's uh, uh, it's this contentiousness that, that, that tries to draw people from, from success with each other and unity with each other. Jealousy. Uh, zelos, it originally meant the word zeal, but it, it came to mean basically you upset over what other people have. Okay. Something good happens to somebody, you get upset. I'll tell you in legal circles. Somebody goes out there and they win this big case. One of my uh, friends who also, because of the nature of my work, is a competitor because we're all out there trying to get the same good cases and to do the same good job for the same clients. Someone gets a good case. There's a part of me that says, man, I hate him having that success. There's no godliness in that response in me. That's a perfect example of the kind of jealousy that comes from the sinful nature. I don't like him being that successful. I mean, that not that wrong? I mean, you look at it and you put it out in the open, I sound pretty shallow, but it's part of who I am and it's something I struggle with. I don't want to be that way. And when it happens, I'm able to say, that's part of the sinful nature. That stinks. I don't want to be that way. God, I, I, don't, that's not, I confess it. I, I don't want to be that way. Help me out of this. Um, fits of rage. There are people who have serious rage issues. And fits of rage are not godly. And that's not from the Lord. That's part of the sinful nature. And it's something to try and and get away from. 
And some people have such problems with it. They need to go to Louis Miori or another counselor to help them find the, the, what's causing it and to help them find their way out. But you have a responsibility to get out of it because it's not godly. It's not what you need to be. And fits of rage, you know, I, I teach, we teach our children as young children, you don't throw temper tantrums. You don't throw hissy fits. Kids that grow his, throw hissy fits, I got a theory. You know what they grow up to be? Adults that throw hissy fits. We don't throw hissy fits. That's just not the way we're going to be. And we try and teach that to our children. Some are easier to teach than others. But if this is a problem you've got and you're 12, then you work with your parents and you work with the Lord. But if you're 20, if you're 30, if you're 40, if you're 50, don't sit there compliantly and say, well, it's just the way I am. Sometimes I fly off the handle. Stop it. Fix it. Well, how do I do that? I've done this for 40 years. I don't know. Lewis does. Fix it with him. <laughs> Selfish ambition. Um, Erethea is the word for selfish ambition. Now, we've got Ron Hickman here. Um, I don't see Debbie Riddle. Do we have any other elected officials in here? <laughs> it's just Ron. Okay, nothing personal here, buddy. Okay. I've heard him make lawyer jokes, and I don't take them personally, so I'm allowed to make this one, all right? Do you know what this word originally meant and how it was used in the Greek? Running for office. Canvassing for votes. Okay. Selfish ambition. Now, obviously, Paul's not saying don't be an elected official. We need godly elected officials. Run for office, please. Anybody in here who feels called to run for office, if your heart's right with God, run for office. We need godly elected officials. But we all, elected officials or not, need to be careful that we don't live our lives with a drive of selfish ambition, looking out for me because I want me to be in control. Dissensions or divisions, uh, factions, dividing up into various groups, us against them. That uh, 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 can be a lot of different ways. It's easy to understand that if you're t speaking to a bunch of middle schoolers because they live by the rule of factions. But we're not in middle school anymore, most of us. So it shouldn't be us against them. It shouldn't be our church against their church. It shouldn't be our race against their race. It shouldn't be our group against their group. It shouldn't be our Sunday school class against their Sunday school class. All of that's from the sinful nature. Envy, uh, that's very closely akin to jealousy. It's where you really want what that other person's got, not just you're upset that they have it. Drunkenness. That means drunkenness. <laughs> uh, the NIV translates komoi as orgies. Um, that basically is always associated with the word drunk, not always, often associated with the word drunkenness in the Greek. And it means the carousings that you do while you're drunk. Okay? All of those are from the sinful nature. Paul says, instead of that, have the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. He uses the word agape. It means caring about others and their needs. Joy. That's not happy. Oh, I'm happy today. Okay? Joy means a deep within you abiding acceptance and awareness and even smiling. A smile in your heart that you can have at all times, even when you're going through the trials that, uh, that, that Scott talked about this morning. Peace. It's a Greek word, but it's a Hebrew word that Paul couldn't be using apart from the Hebrew meaning of shalom, which means a wholeness, a completeness. 
This is what the Spirit grows in you like a fruit. And the wonderfulness about these fruits, as we look at them briefly, these fruits, you know what's neat about a fruit? One of the reasons I think Paul used the word fruit. Have you, the Lanier house, we had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Friday was a super day. It wasn't as impressive for the kids as it was for the adults. But we had a mama chicken who'd been sitting on seven eggs for weeks. And Friday morning they hatched. Okay? These, they hatched, and these little, actually five of them hatched. The other two are no good. Um, but I'll give them to you if you want them. The uh, five that hatched, out come these little bitty chickens. And actually they're big considering they've just been cramped up in an egg for you know weeks. But these little chickens came out. Paul doesn't talk about the, the eggs of the spirit. He talks about the fruit of the spirit. We have fruit trees too. And I've seen my apples grow. And if you've ever seen an apple grow, it is not where you go out, oh, look, today it's got the peeling. Can't cut it open. It's all air inside. Just the peeling's there today. Give it another three or four weeks and some of the, the flesh will grow in the apple. And then give it another couple weeks and it'll finally get the seeds in the core. If they grew from the outside to the inside... We'd pick all of our apples before they got to that core stage. Then you wouldn't have to core them. But fruit grows from the inside out. It's not like an egg that hatches and you've had this full-grown chicken. Fruit, those apples start out like blossoms and then they're real small little apples. And they just keep growing and getting bigger and bigger, but they're growing from the inside out. The peel's there from the start. And that's the way it is with the fruit of the Spirit in us. And why I think, one of the reasons I think Paul used the expression fruit. Why Jesus used the expression fruit when Jesus taught. It's because when God's Spirit is at work in us from the inside out is how we grow in these things. Um, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These fruit of the Spirit are what we need. Becky and I have adopted something new in our house. Uh, Becky uh, uh, had done this in November. She just declared, November is the month of whatever. And I get to declare December. I've been trying to think, what is December going to be the month of in our house? And one of my ideas, although she thought it was rather blasé, is that December should be the month of kindness, where we just make a mental effort each day in December to show each other acts and deeds of kindness and to show others. Let's just declare it that. She said, if I'm going to do that, then January is going to be the month of me doing dishes. (laughs) No, she didn't. Um, Great way to get out of dishes on Thanksgiving, by the way. I was in charge of washing the set of dishes. I got the nice soapy water there in the thing, stuck my hand in there, had a good sharp knife, nearly amputated my finger, and within like the first minute, I was declared incompetent and kicked out of the kitchen. (laughs) Boom. So I'm not suitable to wash dishes. But (laughs) it was not on purpose, but I've lost the finger from there up. Uh, Find the fruit of the Spirit. Some of these come real easy to you. Some people are very patient. Some people are very good and gentle and kind. You don't have to find the bad ones that you're not good at, but find them, rotate them through your life. Just decide, 
I'm going to really pray the Lord will move the Spirit in me to help me with this this month or this week or today. Today's going to be a day of self-control for me. And, and if it's not spirit self-control, you've got to be careful because then tomorrow you let off all the steam that you accumulated today. Self-control is not put a lid on it so that you can then blow up tomorrow in a fit of rage. Self-control is God, letting God be in control. I'm going to accept God's control today. So Paul says these are the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're in step with the Spirit, then you don't become conceited. You don't provoke. You don't envy each other. And then when someone is caught in a sin, you're, those who are, 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 are holy and, and mature need to, to restore that person and do it gently. You carry each other's burdens. You see, all of these phrases that he uses are phrases of the Spirit. This is what you want to be known for. When your eulogy is preached, you don't want them to say, man, when he had fits of rage, he had fits of rage. You want them to say, that was someone who carried other people's burdens. He was kind. That was someone who, who restored sinners gently as opposed to pounding them over the face. You know, I, we live in a country where we like to pound them over the face as opposed to restore them gently. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he's deceiving himself. And then I can skip this part. We're almost done, y'all, because Scott covered it this morning. It's a truth of life. Be not deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That is a fact of life. That is a law. It's not because God's a mean God. But if you stick your finger in the fire, what will happen? You get burned. That's just a rule. Okay? You reap what you sow. You want to be more like the fruit of the Spirit, Paul's saying, then sow to the Spirit. You want to be the sinful nature jerk? Then sow to that. How are you going to live your life? Are you going to, are you going to frequent things that make you sinful? Or are you going to sow to the Spirit and try to find the gentleness and try to find the self-control and try to find the kindness and the peace and the patience? Find the joy that God has put within you and live with it. And don't become weary when you do it because you keep doing good. You keep living this way and you will reap a harvest. All of a sudden you'll wake up and say, you know, I really am a lot more patient than I used to be. Thank you, God. Don't become conceited over it. Thank you, God, for that. And then as we have this opportunity, Paul says, we do goodwill to all people. He adds, especially those in the church. So, the final reminder. No legalistic boasting. We're not good because we're going to heaven and we want to earn our way. We're not good because it's a ticket to God. We're good because His Spirit is alive in us and He has set us free. And we won't boast in anything except the fact, the fact that Jesus Christ had to die for our sins because we're not good enough. That's what we'll boast in. We will never boast in anything save the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our cause for boasting. That's why we change the way we live. That's why we're free to do it. That's because now we can have the Spirit of God within us to move us in this way. So our point's for home. Live free. Don't be bound by sin or law. You're not living to please God. You're living because God is in you.
Live free in faith. Live free in love. Serve one another in love. Let that be the guiding force of your life. Figure out how you can love someone more. Live free from the sinful nature. You don't have to be bound by that stuff anymore. You don't have to be a person of envy and jealousy and drunkenness and carousings and, and, and fits of rage and anger and hatred and bitterness. Instead, cultivate the spiritual fruit. Let that be. Jesus says that you're going to know you by your fruits. Cultivate the spiritual fruits and treat others with love. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for uh, this uh, opportunity to open your word. The study of Galatians, I pray you will put it deep and press it deep on our hearts. Lord, I pray everybody in here, every one of us, Lord, will pick out part of the sinful nature we want to figure out how to avoid. And Lord, help us each one pick out a fruit of the Spirit that we want to see you nurture in us more today as we try to serve each other around us in love. And we have faith in Jesus Christ that you will do this. It is through him, our Savior, in whom alone we boast that we pray, Amen.